Jesus, we thank you for this space, this time uh, to sit, uh, to think, to meditate on what you are doing in our lives, what you have done. Uh, please use uh, your word. Uh, Lord, please use your Holy Spirit in our hearts. May we all have the Pentecostal gift of hearing that we might all hear what we need to hear this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, uh, I, hate the, I hate having to write titles for these sermons. I'm not used to titling things. And so, uh, I came up with this title, uh, How to Receive a Gift. And I ended up liking it uh, as, as I wrote the sermon. Uh, and it's, it might seem sort of odd in sort of Christmas time to think about how to receive a gift. Because you all know that it's more blessed to give than to receive. We all know that. And actually, those are the words of Jesus. Jesus said that. He's quoted uh, by the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, actually. If you looked in your four Gospels, you could not find Jesus saying that. But he said that to Paul. And Paul quotes Jesus as saying, it's better, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And, uh, and I don't, it's not a great idea in a sermon to contradict Jesus right out of the blocks. So I don't want to do that. However, I do want to stipulate, if I had a chance to have a dialogue with Jesus on this, uh, I would say it might be more blessed to give than to receive. However, if someone is giving, there is receiving going on. Receiving is a necessary part of the giving. And so you might rank them and say this is more important, but if you're going to give, someone has to receive. And I think it's important to meditate on that. And so I want to do that this morning. One of my favorite gifts that I have received uh, was last year from my son Graham. And he gave, me, uh, he gave me a little gift card, a little envelope. And I normally like bigger gifts, you know, things that come in big boxes. But, you know, you can't, I can't choose. I'm receiving the gifts. So uh, I open up the, the envelope, and in it is a gift card to Buffalo Wild Wings, 25 bucks. And I thought, oh, that's fantastic. And I look at Graham, and I say, Graham, thank you. He looks back at me, and he says, I thought maybe we could go see a game together. And I just thought, that, that gift just got 100 times better. Because what he's saying is, I want to spend time with you. Can you and I go see a game together and eat some wings? And, uh, and as somebody who grew up with not a very strong, and still to this day, not a very strong connection to my dad, to have my son spend 25 bucks in order for us to spend time together, what an incredible, incredible gift to me and to my heart. I'll remember that forever. And giving and receiving is important at this time of year because giving and receiving reminds us, it reflects, it celebrates the gift of God to us at this time of year. This is a time of year when we have received a gift, the gift of Jesus Christ. I want to read a very familiar Christmas scripture just to anchor this thought. This is in Isaiah 9. Verse 2 says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And I want to skip down to verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We're not going to spend much time in that passage this morning. There's a lot there. I just wanted to anchor what we're talking about in that passage from the Old Testament. The promises given to the Hebrews. There is a Son coming. There is a Messiah who will be given to you. And then the Apostle John takes up this theme in his Gospel. In John 1, announcing Jesus. Verse 4, In Him, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. John tells us that this gift, this sun, this light in the darkness that had been foretold and had been awaited on for many, many centuries is here in the person of Jesus. And then Jesus himself takes up that title. He takes up that mantle. He, he identifies himself as this one in our text this morning. John 8, 12. And Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus claims what is promised, what is foretold in the book of Isaiah. I am that light shining in the darkness. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I want to take a look at this very short verse for the next few minutes. Now, if you know, like we just referenced, a little bit about the history of the Jews, what they've been waiting for, what this announcement that he is the light of the world, if you knew anything about that, you would know and be able to see a couple of things. First, when Jesus says, I am anything, he's making a statement. There are seven statements of I am in the book of John where Jesus says this incredible statement, I am, which is the way that God had identified himself in many years past. I am that I am. Jesus is saying, I am. And then he references, I am the light of the world. He's identifying himself as that Messiah, as that one who has come. A second thing that I want to think about is the idea of light. Why does he talk about light? And what does that have to give us in particular? As we think, so for the, the Hebrews, in the context of Old Testament, I am the light of the world, that has particular context, and it's, it's a question of identity for him. Jesus is saying, this is who I am. But to us, what does it mean when he says, I am the light of the world? What is he offering? What is, what is the content of that promise of that identity? And it's easy to get in fact, I felt the temptation this week to get very metaphysical in this idea and light. And what is, what is light and what does it give to us? And, and how, do I, how do we make that concrete? And how do I understand this? And all the, the ideas and how do you define light and what it means to us? And I was helped in this way by a scene from my favorite movie, The Natural, which is a baseball movie 
Uh, it was actually filmed in my hometown, Buffalo, New York. And you don't have to know anything about the movie, I think, to get what this scene is going to give to us. It's a movie about an aging baseball player, and he's making a comeback. And as part of this story and part of his comeback, he goes up to see the owner of the team, who's called the judge. And he's never met the judge before, and the judge has an office in the stadium that overlooks the field. And this judge, this character, is crooked. He's actually dark. He's evil in the movie. And so Roy Hobbs, played by Robert Redford, thank you, I blanked on him. So Roy Hobbs, played by Robert Redford, has to go see the judge. And he walks into the office, and the office is almost pitch dark. I mean, you have to be able to see in order to know what's happening in the movie, but the, it's a very dark room. And there's, there's a tension there. And so uh, this is what the judge says, explaining this very dark office that, he, that he's in. And I wish I could do it in the, in the accent of this actor. I can't. But as he explains, he says this, please pardon the absence of light. You see, as a youngster, I was frightened of the dark, and I used to wake up sobbing in it as if it was water, and I was drowning in it. As you will observe, I have disciplined myself against that fear so that, so that now I much prefer a dark room. So he's explaining in a very metaphysical sort of way why he prefers the dark, and he's sort of explaining to Roy Hobbs all of this reason. He's actually talking about his childhood. He's getting very, getting very deep here. And I love Roy Hobbs' response. He looks at him and says, all I know about the dark is you can't see in it. Just very simple. He just cuts right through. And so thinking about what does Jesus offer when he offers us light? The only thing I know about the dark is you can't see in it. And that's where I kind of want to live for just a few minutes. This idea that what he offers us is the ability to see. If we were able to make this room completely dark and turn off the lights and black the windows, and I said, everybody get out of here right now, what would happen? Be chaos. We'd be, we'd be getting up. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. Your arms would be out in front. You'd be thinking, okay, where are the, I know there's doors in the back. How far in the row am I? You'd be feeling around, knocking people over. It would be chaos because there are things in this room and you can't see them, and neither could I. And the, the light allows us to see what is here. It just allows us to see what is. The only thing I know about the dark is you can't see in it. Jesus offers all of us the light, the knowledge of what is in the world. I like it. There's a joke that I like to tell, and I don't care if people have heard it before. A couple of uh, scientists came to God one time, and they said, uh, you know what, we've we figured out how to make people without you, all by ourselves. And God says, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty good trick. I'd like to see that. And so one of the scientists gets down in the dirt, starts taking the dirt and forming it into like something. And, uh, and God says, oh, no, 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 no. Get your own dirt. <laughs> and we like to think that what God offers us, that what Jesus offers us, is something on top of what's already there. Well, the world already exists, and Jesus, or God, just offers us wisdom or knowledge or abilities on top of what's already granted. And what we have to realize is that God says, get your own dirt. Everything here is mine.
The reason you can breathe is because of me. The reason you can see out of your eyes is because of me. And so when he says, I'm the light of the world, I'm the reason that you can see anything, he means anything. A friend of mine told me about a TED talk that he saw a couple weeks ago about super chickens. Anyone see this thing about super chickens? Doesn't matter. <laughs> some people had done some study about chickens and laying eggs. And what they had done is when they had a, they had a flock of chickens or whatever you call a group of chickens, and, uh, and they had separated out, over time, the best chickens, the ones who could lay the, the, the most eggs. And they had created a flock of those chickens. And over time, they had created, they had created this, this group of super chickens. And at the end, they looked at what happened to the super chickens. You know what happened to the super chickens? They all pecked each other to death. And my friend references, he says, I love it when science discovers what we already know. When science discovers the way that God created the world is just the way it is. Because we know that people are worth more than what they can produce. And if all you do is look at people and say, I want what you can produce for me, you're going to end up with a mess. Because people are more than the eggs that they can lay. The chickens destroyed each other doing that. We would do the very same thing. All science is doing there is saying, you see this worth? that's embedded in every human person, you can see that reflected in science because it's the truth that God embedded in the world. So when he says, I'm the light of the world, he is the light of the world. He's the reason we know anything. He's the ability to see what is there. Now my daughter, Caroline, who likes beautiful things, would also want me to say that in addition to light being beautiful, in addition to light being useful, it's also beautiful. And uh, we just, you probably did this uh, yesterday or we'll be doing it soon. We just got our tree and put our Christmas tree in the house and hung lights on it. We hung lights on the outside of our house. And those lights aren't for any particular purpose other than just their own beauty. I don't need to see the front yard any better. I don't need to see the, the, the area. I don't need to see inside the tree. There's nothing useful about that. We do that because it's beautiful, because it's pretty to look at. You ever looked at your tree and, and squinted? To make it prettier? Try that next time. If you've ever done that, it's pretty cool. There's just something beautiful about that. It's part of this time of year. And Jesus, in being the light of the world, is also beautiful. For us to come to Jesus just for what he can give to us, just for the knowledge, that's not good enough. For us to really appreciate this gift that God has given to us, it's to be able to understand his beauty, his glory. We sing not because he's useful to us, but because his character, because his glory, because it's compelling to look at, to gaze upon, because there is nobody like Jesus. He came and he did more than save us from our sin. Though that's really good and that's important enough in its own to gaze upon. But Jesus comes as one who's not just useful to us, but beautiful. And this time of year reminds us of that and reflects that to us. So that's just us talking about Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. It talks about his identity. We get to see the beauty and the usefulness of light and that Jesus is the source of that. Those things are cosmic. 
in their reach and importance. And then what I love is that Jesus takes this cosmic statement about being the light of the world, and then he shrinks it down to us. And he says, he, whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What Jesus is saying there is this, is that we can experience this light when we follow him. This cosmic light, this knowledge, this beauty, what he's saying is that when you follow me, when you get close to me and follow after my ways, you can experience this gift that I have to give to you. Back to my gift that I had received from Graham, the $25 gift card. I was very grateful for that gift, and I understood exactly what he said and what he meant. But what if, when he looked at me and said, I thought we could go see a game together, what if I looked back at him and said, you know, Graham, no thanks. I don't want to go anywhere with you. I'd rather just go get a beer by myself or take some of my friends out for, for some wings. Doesn't that just feel awful? I mean, you can just feel the hurt and the disappointment that would be in his heart as someone who gave that gift and it being rejected. And I could say, well, well what's the problem? He gave me the $25. It's my money. I can't I do with it what he wants? Isn't, it, isn't, it that, isn't that the gift? And you would go, no, you idiot. That's not the gift. The gift is the relationship. The gift is the memory of going to do that. The gift is the, 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 the experience of being together and enjoying, because we went to go see the Yankees play their opening day game. That's a memory that we'll have. And, and of eating the wings and of spending time talking and being together. That's the gift. To reject that is to reject everything. It's to misunderstand what it was intended for. For us to take all the things that God gives to us and to look at him and say, but I don't really want you, is to misunderstand the gift. I was with a group of high school guys a couple years ago, and like this experience, some of the most important things I've learned have been from young people. And uh, we were talking about this idea of relationship and what it really means. And we throw that word around a lot. And we think we understand what it means. But what I did is I asked this group of guys, I said, when we talk about relationship, what do we really mean? Like, what are we talking about? And so we had a little group discussion for 20 minutes about what, we, what, we, what it means. And they came up with these three. These are their things, not mine. They said these three things. And I really like them. I don't know that it says everything that you need to say about a relationship, but it says some pretty important things. The first thing that they decided is that in order to have a relationship with somebody, they're involved in your life. It's pretty good. Like, you can imagine, okay, well, I know that person. Do I have a relationship? Are they involved in my life? Am I involved in theirs? If not, not, a, not really a relationship. Involved. Second thing they said, and this is a little bit like involved, but not quite the same thing. Two-way street, they said. A relationship is a two-way street. There's communication. There's, uh, there's back and forth between people. And again, that's a pretty good test of a relationship. 
I can even imagine someone who's involved in my life, maybe a teacher, for instance. But there's not a two-way street. There's not a, a, a give and take back and forth. There's not an exchange of love and ideas. And so I think, I think the, the two-way street adds a little bit to that. And the third thing that they said, which is really perceptive in my mind for a group of high school boys, is they said there's a special bond. It feels sort of touchy-feely to me, but I think it's good. A special bond. So th that's the way that they define a relationship. Involved, two-way street, and a special bond. I think, man, that's pretty good. Now, we were just talking about relationships in general. What if we applied that to this relationship with Jesus? When we think about our interaction with the God of the universe who has given us himself, is he involved in our lives? Are we involved in his life and what he's doing in his kingdom? Is it a two-way street? And do we have a special bond? Interesting question to ask. I wanted to give a couple examples of how this has borne itself out in my life. Just because you might be going, Glenn, I, really have no, I still have no idea what you're talking about. Or I don't really know how I would experience that. I've got three quick stories just to give you some examples of how this has played out in my life, in my interaction with Jesus. Four or five years ago, uh, I switched my position within Young Life. And the position that I had before was an area-funded uh, position, meaning the, 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 the money for it came from people who cared about their own kids. And as you may have noticed, last week, I think it was last week, or it might have been two weeks ago, I spoke about the work that I'm involved with, which is now regional in nature. I'm spending time with staff and leaders in a three-hour radius. And so and that's a different group of people who are going to give money to do that kind of work. They're not going to care about their own kids. They're going to somehow care about this larger thing. And so in order to do that, I needed to raise $40,000 in extra money over and above what I was going, was what I was already raising. And if I didn't, I really wouldn't have a job and I really wouldn't have a paycheck, which at this stage of life is a little disconcerting. And, uh, but I was encouraged by some friends Glenn, this is what God is calling you to do. Jesus is asking you to do this. Go, step out in faith and trust that this is what he's doing and that he will provide. And so I said, all right, I guess I'll go. Like I was in some ways being pushed, gently pushed and encouraged from behind. And I needed to start asking people for money, for a whole lot of money. And I, one day I got an email from some friends of mine who had been long friends and supporters of what we have done. And I figured that eventually I would ask them to help with this new thing that I was doing. But I didn't get a chance to ask them yet. They sent me an email before I had a chance to ask them. And they said, Glenn, we've got some money sitting in an account. And uh, it's about $10,000. We'd like to give that to you in order to start this new thing that you're doing. We're so excited about what God is doing in you. And I thought, Jesus, I was so afraid. And I felt like what the Lord was telling me was this. You're going to have to trust me a lot in the next couple years for this to work out. And you're going to have to go ask people. But I'm spotting you the first 10. Go. Before you even had a chance to ask for it, I'm sending some of your best friends to write you a big check to say we are behind you in a big way. That was people providing, but it was God providing for us through people. Saying, I'm behind you. I'm with you. I look at that and go, involved? Two-way street, special bond, absolutely. Jesus, this is a whole lot of fun. Two more quick stories. 
A couple years ago, something happened in my relationship with my dad. I don't need to go into the details of it, but it was something that I had wanted to avoid for a long, long time. And it looked like I was going to have to now take responsibility in his life in a way that I wasn't used to. And it really, really got to me inside. That weekend that I contemplated what the future was going to look like was, is one of the darkest weekends I can remember. As I think about uh, what, what was going to have to happen in terms of the way that I was going to have to come around and make some changes in the way that I cared for my dad. Because there were some things going back that I wasn't really able to do that when I was a teenager. And my spirit was helped when I read one of my favorite verses, Isaiah 61.3, which in the New Living Translation says this, In their righteousness they will be like great oaks, which the Lord has planted for his glory. And just in that, in reading that scripture, and, and the Lord applying that to my heart and my situation, I felt like he was saying to me, Glenn, you could not have handled this when you were 17 years old. It was right for you to reject this role in your father's life when you were 17, because you were just a tender young shoot. But you, on, you are on your way to becoming an oak. You have grown a lot since you were 17 years old. You and I have walked together a lot. And if this comes to you, you and I can handle it together. My whole countenance changed because I knew that he was involved. He was with me. We have a special bond. And the last one is the simplest. When we had Caroline, our first. And uh, it was a couple weeks after we had uh, had her and I was away on a trip for a, a couple of days. And uh, it's the first time I've been away from my daughter, my new daughter. And I remember looking at her picture on my phone and feeling that ache of missing her. And this verse came to my mind. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Another translation says that just a little bit better in my mind. I like it better. It says that's not just what we're called. That is what we are. And I remember thinking, you mean you love me more than that? Than I love that little girl? I never understood what it meant for a father to love a son or a daughter until I had a son or a daughter. And the Lord is telling me, you think your fatherly instincts, you think your fatherly love is weaker, is stronger than mine? No, it's far weaker. I love you more than you love that little girl. And I always have. Oh, involved, two-way street, special bond. Those are some of the ways, some of the stories in which that reality has worked itself out in my life. Here's what I love. Is that in this season, everything about this season points to this. The Christmas cookies that taste so good. The light that we see the people that we get to spend time with, the gifts that we receive, all these things point to the goodness of God's love for us. I think it's great to think about how can we do less this Christmas? How can we be less involved in the commercialism and, 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 and don't give ourselves over to materialism? And how can we think about how to, how to bless others and to give? But there is something strong and powerful in receiving for us to stop receiving during Christmas 
to stop enjoying these wonderful things, this celebration that we've been given, is to miss out. For we are people who need to receive. And for us to think, you know what, I'm just going to spend all my time giving and making this work for other people is to miss the point. For Jesus has come to us and said, I have given you myself. Will you receive me? Will you receive me? I want to give you one action step to do between now and Christmas. Do it or don't do it, I don't care. But if you're sitting there thinking, Glenn, what do I do? I got an answer for you. What I want you to do is I want you to sit down in front of your Christmas tree all by yourself. So it's going to have to maybe be early in the morning or late at night when no one else is around. I want you to sit in front of your Christmas tree, make sure the lights are on, and open your Bible to John 8, 12, and read that verse, and then talk to the Lord. And say, Lord, I don't want to miss you. I know that you are giving me yourself. And I know that you and I have work to do. You and I have business to, to interact. That you came for a relationship with me and I don't want to ignore that. What would you have for me? Can I tell you about the things that are on my heart? Can I tell you about the things that I'm worried about? And maybe you will begin a new experience of Jesus being involved in your life with a two-way street and the two of you having a special bond. And if that's what comes out of that, then praise Jesus. He has come to give us himself. He is the light of the world. Let me pray. Jesus, we run around during this time of year, I know I do, trying to make things happen for other people, trying to be um, and to make Christmas what it should be, and trying to be a giver. Lord, help me to receive. Help me to not miss you. Thanks for your great love and for revealing yourself as light and darkness. We pray this in your name.